we got here first. So, in effect, the special rights to be granted to Indigenous people are a recognition that their ancestors were here first, that they owned it and it was taken from them against their will. In effect, non-Indigenous people at a legal level are second-class citizens in comparison. According to that schema? Yep. And, yeah, and as you said, and do we then rank people according to how long their ancestors have been here? Yeah. Dear listener, if you've just tuned in and you missed the first part, go back to the beginning because we acknowledged the disadvantage and suffering of Indigenous people, but not all of them. Uh, a lot of them, a disproportionate amount, yes, but not all of them. In effect, non-Indigenous people at a legal level are second-class citizens. That wouldn't look good if we applied the same thinking to refugees arriving by boat. Imagine if we said, okay, you can come in, but we don't like it. And your ancestors will be ineligible for certain advisory bodies until they intermarry with the people who got here first. Yes, indeed. What would the left say to that? That's how disgusting. Yeah. Uh, what is the Indigenous position on refugees? I would like to know. Um, because you see it's, it's about victim status mm. because obviously refugees we have sympathy for because they've had a hard time and we would not want to increase their hardship mm. in a nasty way. I, and so sympathies and emotions are at play yes, where indeed. you then go, oh, well, that's not really fair. Mm. And like, yeah. like me, I'm sure you've mm. seen um, self-identified Indigenous spokespeople mm. or commentators mm. Expressing great sympathy for refugees on Nauru and Manus Island, and, yeah. you know, and that's a, a reasonable p- position for anyone to yeah. to hold. Yeah. But um, you know, according to your uh, proposition, mm. they would have fewer rights, wouldn't mm. they? Victims are not necessarily expert on providing their own solutions. So what evidence is there that Indigenous rather than non-Indigenous people know what is best for Indigenous people? And that's partly, I mean, that's that's foundational to their claim, isn't it, for mm. wanting an Indigenous voice, is that mm. non-Indigenous people are just not qualified yes. to fix their problems. Because they haven't had the lived experience. Yeah. So I would say uh, lots of Indigenous leaders have been very poor. So somebody like Anthony Mundine advised against vaccinations. Yeah for goodness sake. Many Indigenous leaders were against marriage equality. Were they? Hmm. Ken Wyatt is part of a government that through reckless tax cuts has sabotaged the welfare system that many Indigenous people rely on and are going to rely on. And probably for several... So so Ken Wyatt, the Indigenous Affairs Minister, or however it's phrased, has done more damage for needy... Indigenous people than anybody else in the last yeah. uh, little while, Just simply by, helping by that government get to those tax cuts. Yes, and supporting it. So, um, so you know, these Indigenous leaders are not necessarily any better. And if I have Indigenous grandchildren, I can give better advice than those numbskulls about how best to care for my Indigenous grandchildren. It's not a very nice thing to say about your grandchildren. No. Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, well, numbskulls as in Anthony Mundine, Ken White, people yes. like that. So I could give better advice than them sure. about what to do mm. for potentially my Indigenous grandchild and, and great-grandchildren, but I'd be banned from doing so because of my skin colour. Yeah. These are... Uh, 
interesting arguments when you and when look you at pull the it prop- apart, you yep. can see the bankruptcy of that uh, whole theory. Yeah. How can we say there is an indigenous position on anything? So I said earlier, what's the indigenous position on refugees? Presumably, they don't all think the same. Are they like many Australians, fifty, you know, split fifty-fifty on important issues? So this is the uh, this. It's a racist thinking to say, well, all Indigenous people think this particular way or that particular way. That's right. Or all non-Indigenous because you're assuming because of their skin colour they have a certain characteristic. That's right. That that is racism. You have to accept that there's a high likelihood that. Indigenous people have got to have a spectrum of views on issues as much as white people Wouldn't do. What do you think? Indeed. I mean, white people are arguing about what's the best thing to do for white people mm. and we're stuck 50-50 on Liberal and Labor most of the time mm. and our thoughts on how the best to deal with it are at polar. You know, we're getting more and more apart. Mm. It's, it's racist to say that Aboriginal people would all think the same sure. on an issue. Yeah. It would be impossible for an advisory board to give full and frank advice as to, as to a, a, a dominating majority opinion of what Indigenous people think about it. Or not impossible, but difficult, fraught with danger. And, you know, and, and just because it is the majority view, maybe it's wrong. So, I mean, the majority voted for Scott Morrison in the last election, and I'm saying they're wrong. That was a big mistake. Mm. So um, It was a small so, majority, but it was a majority. It was, yeah, okay, yeah. So... Um, so uh, I mentioned earlier that Indigenous people, there was a number of leaders were in, against marriage equality. Um, I've got a link here. There was a bark petition um, about 25 different tribes who signed it and saying that uh, they were against marriage equality and it was against uh, um, opposed to it and called for the sanctity of traditional marriage. So even on an issue like that, there's a hugely divergent opinion. I I have no idea what the traditional Indigenous attitude to homosexuality is. Do you have any idea? There wouldn't be one. But have you ever seen the uh, TV program Black Comedy? Is it Black Comedy? I've seen bits of it. Yeah. And, I mean, one of the recurring skits that they had on that program was some, you know, uh, obviously gay... Aboriginal men, mm-hmm. you know, sort of, you know, mm, yep. acting very yes. um, obviously like, you know, homosexuals. Sort of big camp. Yeah, yep. very camp. Right. Yeah. Mm. And presumably it was supposed to be funny because we don't expect to see obviously camp Aboriginal men. Is, yeah. that, is that what it was about? Could be. I didn't see it. But yeah. 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 Um, is Indigenous decision-making by its leadership democratic and does it matter so Jacinta Nepijimpa Price said that um, <clears throat> going back to 2017 when First Nations Constitutional Convention was held at Uluru the representatives in attendance were invited by nominees of the referendum council and not elected by indigenous people not elected no, no. so do we value democracy for indigenous people or not do you know if um, Ms Price was there not sure mm, I'm yeah. not sure either don't know Class divisions in Indigenous communities. Is there a division between working class and privileged Indigenous people? Uh, what was the Indigenous position on the recent tax cuts? I didn't hear a thing. 
Uh, as we've said, this is probably one of the biggest decisions affecting Indigenous people, but I didn't hear a peep. So uh, we never hear of working class Indigenous people, upper class Indigenous people, but they must exist. They're all lumped together as Indigenous. Yeah. And they would have different priorities uh, and interests. Mm. And it's Although, of course, there are working class Indigenous people. And of course. Stan Grant is one that comes to mind who, who speaks about his um, childhood and his upbringing. And, I'm, you know, it's pretty clear his family were working class Indigenous people. Very much. Yeah, of course there is. Yeah. yeah. Um, just getting back to the inherited uh, rights, are inherited privileges fair? Uh, so the left often advocates for inheritance tax. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, recognises that there are good reasons why wealth and entitlement should not be passed down in full to descendants. And there's shouldn't, a pretty strong argument for that, I think. Mm, shouldn't the same apply to land rights? Hmm, interesting. If you're a lefty in favour of inheritance tax, it's difficult to hold those two positions. But they're special. They're First Nations. I think we should be a republic. I think the notion of inherited rights belongs to the royal uh, of inherited rights belonging to the royal family is unjust. Mm. I don't believe privilege should be passed on down generations to a special family based on their DNA. Agree. Uh, so again, if you're a republican, an anti-monarchist, because you don't like the idea of the inherited privilege of the royal family, then why then not? Are you against all inherited exactly privilege? across the board? It's a very good question. We say that welfare should be based on need, not race. So I'd have no problem tripling the welfare payments to disadvantaged Indigenous people mm. and non-Indigenous indigenous people, people indeed. in remote communities. But a wealthy Indigenous city dweller should get no special treatment. Mm. The- which, which brings to mind, Trevor, um, when was the last time you filled in a, a Commonwealth um, document? The one with the little box? The one with the little box that asks you to tick whether you're Indigenous or non-Indigenous. Yeah. Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, yeah. yes or no? That box should say, are you disadvantaged and poor? Are you on New Start? Are you on some welfare benefit? Uh, do you earn be. less than exactly. 50000 a year? That exactly. should be the box that you're ticking. It's a racist when... uh, inclusion on all those documents, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Gee, we're going to get in trouble for this. Like, people are not going to cop this. Do you know, I was thinking about that recently and I was thinking, yeah, I always, you know, dutifully tick the non-Indigenous box. I think I'm just going to ignore it from now on. Right. I'm just not going to tick anything that relates to race. Yeah. Um, So I say, we say possibly, that identity politics is a scourge on our society. Sure is. Uh, Disadvantaged people should be coalescing together rather than splintering into Mm. identity groups. Um, Stan Grant uh, was in the news uh, a year, year and a half, two years ago, sort of wrote a letter and uh, one of the quotes he said in it was, for so many of my people, Aboriginal people, there's a deep, deep wound that comes from the time of dispossession. Uh, And I've got a link to an interesting letter by a refugee who, uh, who responds to the Stan Grant letter. And he just says, Stan, that's a a tribalistic sentiment that's unhelpful and fuels resentment. It doesn't lead to change. Uh, 
Um, also in the Stan Grant um, speech, he says, um, someone's suffering was the scaffolding on which you built your prosperity. And what I would say to that is, uh, in terms of, say, Latin America, with the uh, Spanish invasion, they basically put all of the um, natives to work in the mines, extracted all the gold and silver and shipped it back to uh, Spain. Spain and yeah. d- depleted those countries of reserves which today would be in the trillions of dollars and mm. could be setting up those countries. Yeah. And, and that was wealth that was extracted and, and sent offshore. Here in Australia... We're more fortunate because uh, the sort of minerals and wealth of this country weren't, to, to a similar extent, extracted and shipped off to another country. Mm. Essentially, you know, ignoring, of course, multinationals rotting the system and, and all the rest of it, but comparatively to a large extent, our wealth has stayed in this country yeah. and been spent <clears throat> Yeah. On this country, I don't think and is and is here for everybody. You're, exactly. you're not excluded from it. So, mining of um, minerals in Australia yeah. didn't really reach a uh, an intensive stage until probably around the middle of the 20th century. Yeah. Would that be right? Uh, I mean, there were gold rushes and things. Of course, there were but, yes yeah, yeah. in the 19th century. But yeah. you know, when did the yeah. sort of mass exploitation of things like iron ore start? I think it was sort yeah. of that was Lang um, Hancock flying his oh, plane over Western Australia and, and spotting yeah, but they iron were, ore from the. They were shipping it out before yeah. that. I think probably you know roughly the middle of the. I mean, there was that um, thing prior to World War Two where. Um, Bob Menzies, Prime Minister, ex-Prime Minister Bob Menzies was, was labelled Pig Iron Bob for shipping iron to the Japanese. Right, yeah. So it is in more recent times. Yeah. And yes, you know, multinationals have taken some of that wealth and, and shipped it offshore, but to a large extent, much of the wealth stayed in the country and it's there for all Australians, hopefully, to yeah. benefit from. But anyway, that's that argument. Um Right. One of our favourite writers over the years has been Kenan Malik. Indeed. Mm. So he talks about class, working class, and the plight of the working class people. And he talks about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. And Kenan is such a marvellous writer that mm. I'm just going to read some of his stuff. So here we go. Um, Martin Luther King's insistence on non-violence is well known but his radicalism is often forgotten. In the mid-1960s, he took a decisive and politically brave stance against the Vietnam War, describing America as the great purveyor of violence in the world today. He became an advocate, too, of working-class struggles. In the weeks before his death, King was deeply involved in the Memphis sanitation workers' strike when rubbish collectors had taken industrial action for union recognition, better conditions and equal pay. To question poverty, he observed, is to question the capitalistic economy. So that's the sort of universalism that King was interested in. (coughs) Malcolm X reinvented himself to an even greater degree, a petty criminal in his youth that was in prison that he discovered the nation of Islam and became a Muslim. By the 1950s, he'd become um, uh, uh, an effective public advocate, a searing voice against racism. He is quoted as saying, 
There will ultimately be a clash between the oppressed and those who, that do the oppressing. But I don't think it will be based on the colour of the skin. Oh, really? That was Malcolm X. So wow. even he had that sort of view. So um, bear that in mind, Indigenous leaders. It's about class and poverty and, yes. and gathering together yes, everybody. Indeed. Your access to, to the uh, nation's resources. Yeah. Mm. Um, by the end of their lives, the two men had drawn closer to each other's views. Their differences were, however, real and spoke to an inherent tension within the struggle for racial equality. King expressed a universalist ethos that racism was intimately bound with the social structures of America and that challenging it required the creation of broader social movements. Malcolm X was sceptical both about the possibilities of such movements and about King's call for moderation to win wider support. He insisted that blacks had first to organise on their own and to protect themselves by any means necessary. It was a vision that inspired the radicalism of the Black Panthers and the Black Panther power movement. Uh, so there's a choice there. Indigenous leaders, I say go with the Martin Luther King version. You'll get more assistance if you do. Um, right. I'll move on from that. Okay, now we're going to move on to a guy called Coleman Hughes. And I've only discovered this guy about a year ago. And he's terrific. He's fascinating. He's terrific. <clears throat> and he's so young. He's only like 22 or yeah, something. He's an undergraduate. Like he's like an that. undergraduate in philosophy, I think, at a university yeah. in New York. Yeah. So he, of course, is talking about America, United States. And he is a black man mm. of African American descent, I believe. And he's talking about the wealth gap between African-American blacks and the white population and talking about how it's come about, that wealth gap. Is it because of discrimination or are there other factors at play? Um, and he's able to illustrate in this article, and I'm just sort of querying how much of it to tell, um, Basically, that the, there's an argument that even though laws are fair now, that black people were disadvantaged for so long, kept out of the property market, that they can never get back onto it and are therefore permanently disadvantaged that they can never in catch terms up. of wealth, yeah. which sounds a, a reasonable hypothesis. But he draws comparisons with other migrant groups who have had no benefits of any special sort and perhaps even more discrimination. Mm. So uh, he says, history tells a different story, starting with the California Alien Land Law of 1913. Fourteen states passed laws preventing Japanese-American peasant farmers from owning land and property. These laws existed until 1952, mm. when the Supreme Court ruled them unconstitutional. Uh, add to that the internment of 120,000 Japanese-Americans during World War II, and it's fair to say that they were given no bootstraps in America. Nevertheless, by 1970, census data showed Japanese-Americans out-earning Anglo-Americans, Irish-Americans, German-Americans, Italian-Americans and Polish-Americans. Uh, again, for Asian-Americans on the whole, an analysis of wealth data from 1989 to 2013 
um, predicted that their median wealth will soon surpass the white median level. So that's for Asians as a, as a race, Asian Americans. If wealth differences were largely explained by America's history of favouring certain groups over others, then it would be hard to explain why Asian Americans, who were never favoured, are on track to become wealthier than whites. Mm. And the argument that he puts forward, dear listener, is that culture is important. Indeed. That certain races, ethnicities, cultures all come with a culture. And those cultures are, you know, we praise them in certain ways mm. of, oh, isn't this culture magnificent? Yeah. You know, those Italians know how to cook pasta or, Indeed. you know, whatever it is about culture that you want to, mm. you know, the spirituality of, of Indigenous people or whatever. People always speak glowingly and positive about aspects of culture. Mm. But Colin Hughes makes the point that some cultures come with negative sides as yes. well. And sometimes those negative sides are in the wealth creation. And he also areas. mentions Haitian uh, uh, yes. immigrants mm. to the United States uh, who were basically of African descent. Mm. And yet within you know, a relatively short period of time, their average wealth exceeded that of the African-Americans who'd been there for many generations. Yeah. So you might say about the Asian situation, well, they don't look black. And black people look <laughs> yeah. black and are discriminated in a certain way because of their look. And that would be a, a good argument. But the but, same applies to the Haitians. Exactly. So he says... <clears throat> A 2015 study of wealth in Boston found that the median black household, so this is black African-American, mm-hmm. uh, had only $8 of wealth. Um, but the $8 figure only pertained to black Bostonians of American ancestry. Black Bostonians of Caribbean ancestry had $12,000 of wealth. Mm. Despite having identical rates of college graduation, only slightly higher incomes and being equally black in the same city. Mm. So Caribbean blacks and American blacks, same city, same, slightly slight, slightly higher income, but same rates of but college graduation. Physically indistinguishable Indeed, to the average person. in the same city. And um, he says similar disparities emerge when people are grouped by religion. A 2003 study found that Jewish households had a seven-to-one wealth advantage over conservative Protestant households, Mm. despite the fact that Protestants have been favoured over Jews for most of American history. Mm -hmm. Um, And they also carry that um, mythical, you know, Protestant work ethic. (laughs) Yes. Um, So what happens, of course, is in certain communities the black African community, uh, well, there's, uh, first of all, amongst males, a a propensity not to um, value academic study because you're seen as being a whitey. (coughs) There's also issues to do with spending of money, which I'll get on to. Whereas in the the Caribbean black community, you know, education was valued. Mm. So, you know, big differences there. Also in Asian communities, education is very highly valued. Exactly. Mm. And we know, you know, that, you know, Indian Indian and Asian communities value medicine, for example. You just find a disproportionate number of people of those races, ethnicities, if you like, Mm. in those professions because of culture. Mm -hmm. So... uh, 
where I was going to end it, and, and just with Jewish people, like uh, I've I spend a fair bit of time with some Jewish people, and I can tell you those people talk business all the time. Do they? I'm like, <laughs> and they get together, and it's about business. And it's and, cultural, and, and that's a cultural mm. thing. And uh, you know, kids who grow up in a Jewish household hear about how to their parents money. and their parents' friends and their community make money in yeah. business. Yeah. And when you sit and absorb it, you learn that stuff. Yeah. And you have, you know, wealth creation sense, of how to run a business sense, you're ahead of the game. Indeed. Yeah. Right. Um, so let me just see here. <clears throat> so... Colin Hughes says that conspicuous amongst the sort of progressive left is is whether people can help themselves. And there's a little bit of that in the Indigenous community amongst some people. Jacinta Nampijimpa Price would be one who'd say, mm-hmm. I think people can help themselves a bit Saying, more. Saying, yeah, that they have yep. to, rather than yep. just incessantly mm. complaining, they have to yep. get off their asses and do yep. something constructive. So on the American side, Colin Hughes talks about what black uh, African-Americans can do to help themselves as a group. And he said, no element of culture harms black wealth accrual more directly than spending patterns. Nielsen, one of the world's leading market research firms, keeps extensive data on American consumer behaviour broken down demographically. A 2017 report found compared to white women, black women were 14% more likely to own a luxury vehicle, 16% more likely to purchase costume jewellery, and 9% more likely to purchase fine jewellery. A similar Nielsen report from 2013 found that only 62% of Americans own a smartphone, but 71% of blacks owned one. Only 62%? That was in 2013. Oh, right. Owned a smartphone. It's probably higher now. Um, Moreover, all of these spending differences were unconditional on wealth and income. Mm. Uh, So it's a cultural thing rather than something determined by their... You know, wealth. Yeah. Uh, Talks about a study consistent with the Nielsen data. They found that blacks with comparable incomes to whites spent 17% less on education and 32% more on visible goods such as cars, jewellery and clothes. Mm. And that that's accounted for uh, about 50% of the sort of the wealth disparity. So these are things in black American culture that seem to make sense to me Mm. and bringing that back to our Australian Indigenous culture, I don't see the same bling culture. But certainly you have this idea in the remote communities about, um, uh, you know, what you own belongs to the tribe. Yeah, humbuggers, Humbuggers. they call it. Yeah, and that's a cultural thing. Very much so. In those communities, which necessarily would suck the... Uh, the life force out of any person thinking of acquiring wealth because it's, why work hard when it's you're just dissipated. going to be giving it all yeah. away? I mean, Indeed. surely that's a cultural reason in some places. Not all, but surely that is a factor that comes to play in disadvantage. It would appear to be a fairly, um, I may be wrong, but mm. a fairly um, consistent um, Pattern throughout Indigenous societies. Mm. Uh, let me just see here. He says here, Coleman Hughes again, just to sort of finish up, 
just like no person is born knowing how to brew beer or play basketball, no person is born knowing how to build wealth. These skills must be taught. And just like some cultures teach beer brewing or basketball playing better than others, some cultures teach wealth building better. Children from one culture may routinely hear phrases like asset diversification and mutual fund fund and employment rate on the lips of their parents, whereas children from another culture may not hear such phrases until adulthood, if they ever hear them at all. Mm. So, good points. I never heard those, those yeah. words in my childhood, I have to say. Yeah. So, uh, still on Coleman Hughes, and he has the parable of the pedestrian, um, which comes from a legal scholar, Amy Wax, apparently, saying, try this parable out. A reckless driver runs a stoplight and hits a pedestrian, injuring her spine. Doctors confirm the pedestrian uh, that if she is ever to walk again, she'll have to spend many painstaking years in physical therapy. Clearly, she bears no responsibility for her injury. She was victimised by a reckless driver. Yet the driver cannot make her whole. He might pay for her medical bills, for instance, but he cannot make her attend her tedious physical therapy sessions. Only she can do that. Still, she might resist. She might write historical accounts detailing precisely how and why the driver injured her. When her physical therapists demand more of her, she might accuse them of blaming the victim. She might wallow in the unfairness of it all. But this will change nothing. The nature of her injury precludes the possibility of anyone besides her healing it. This is from a black man in America that I'm quoting for everyone reading it. Send in the racist taunts. Just bear that in mind where it comes from. Um, it's a good parable. Yep. Yeah. I think that might be a good point to sort of... You know, there's other topics we could deal with, but I reckon, 12th man, without making the episode too long, probably an hour and ten minutes or something there, but that, that's, that's kind of the nutshell. The, the only other thing that we might talk about is... Often sort of I've found that Indigenous achievements of historical nature seem to be beaten up and exaggerated, it seems. Mm. That, you know, you read stories where, well, AFL football has its origins in the game that the local Indigenous people were playing. I don't think many people are persuaded by that story, do you? Yeah, or, or that... Indigenous people were these amazing astrologers and mathematicians. Oh, that's and, the one that I find and, 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 just unbelievable, yeah. that, that they're now called, they're not just, you know, people who looked at the, at the stars, <coughs> they're now called astronomers, they're called Indigenous yeah. astronomers. And, and sure, they may have an understanding of patterns in the sky, etc. Yes, but, but did they are, know what stars were? I very much doubt it. These things seem to be beaten up where people feel a need to sort of overstate, it overstate seems. Overstate and grossly the, the, exaggerate. The, the, the achievement of Indigenous people. And, the, and I just say to them, you don't have to. Like, yeah. Indigenous people discovered what they did, built what they did, achieved what they did to suit the conditions of where they were. I exactly. mean, this was a country with poor soil but a certain type of vegetation and animals and they, they, you know, survived quite well with, well, they with what they were doing. Yeah. And, and so it's no shame to... I think have, it's quite patronising, to, to be honest. You know, it's, yeah. like, it's like, you, you know, when you, 
you know, your neighbour brings their child over and says, do you know what my son did today, my two-year-old? You know, he he built this great sandcastle and you go, oh, gee, that's terrific. Right, yeah. It's it's a magnificent structure, isn't it? You know, it's so patronising to, as you say, to inflate, grossly inflate the achievements when, you know, I mean, compared with just about, you know, the the technological culture of just about any other part of the world, they were very rudimentary. Their technology was extremely rudimentary. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with it at all. And And it's nothing to be ashamed or embarrassed about. Yes. I mean, this is is world history. Yes. And I think we all benefit from just being honest about it all. I mean, it's not as if we prance around saying, oh, gee, our European ancestors, weren't they amazing compared with everybody else? Yes. I mean, to me, I see the whole of humanity's Mm. achievements as the – you know, the achievements of humanity, yes. not the achievements of Germans or yeah. Japanese or whatever, you know? Yes, yeah. So, so sure, these things are of interest, but, mm. boy, you, they do seem to be beaten up. And, and don't you... F- and I could go into detail about yeah. them, but I won't in the interest of keeping this podcast oh. at, a, at a reasonable level. And it, it's, <laughs> there's a sort of a tinge of the nastiness to it, which it, it's, it's a minor matter in the scheme of the bigger issues that we've explored. And, yes. and the other one, just on the sideline, was just that Indigenous people are, are painted as, as great ecological custodians of our land who kept it in a pristine condition yeah. that we, of course, now are, are ruining. And, yeah. of course, our record now is very poor, but, mm. uh, the, 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 it, you know, it's without doubt that Indigenous people on arriving in Australia wiped out all of this large, slow-moving... The megafauna. F- f- megafauna, lovely fairy balls of protein. And, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm again, not sure that's really been... Proven one way or another, yeah, but in, in my readings, it has. Oh, really? Yeah, mm. and uh, and the vegetation was changed dramatically by mm-hmm. fire burning. I mean, mm. there was a lot of firing going on, and mm-hmm. it's not a criticism. Yeah. It's just the way that they conducted things. Yeah. But but then to turn around and and to claim that they were great conservationists and kept the land pristine yeah. in the condition that they found yeah. it and understood the changes that. That could be made to a landscape and and mm. uh, and didn't uh, yeah. is, is just another sort of sideline issue. That's, but there's another that's issue, and that's you know what you were saying about culture. You know how you know if if Jewish people uh, talk about business all the time yes, over yes. the dinner table, their kids are going to grow up mm. with those concepts already learned. Mm. Now, what I've read about the Jewish history, what little I've read, mm. is that that hasn't always been the case, and that came about as a as a result of certain historical expulsions by certain European countries where right. at some point yes. they, would, they would be happy to have Jewish people in their community or living on the fringes of their communities because yes. they served a good purpose. At other times they decided they didn't want them anymore and they would, they would tell them to get lost. And yeah. there was a migration from France, I think, into Eastern Europe like Poland and Lithuania and countries like that at some point several hundred years ago where the, the, the Poles and the Lithuanians, I think it was, uh, suddenly decided that it, was, it w- would be good for their local economy to have Jewish people come and help them and, and assume certain roles. Mm. And so uh, while Jewish people didn't always undertake those specialised um, roles as moneylenders or whatever, they learnt that it was to their advantage to pursue mm. those occupations and... 
And they were, and they did. Yeah. My understanding because as well is is that they were, in many areas, banned from owning land. Yes, and that they had to resort to to trades, um, you know, manufacturing. Yeah. Uh, small but Jewish people ju- in in other stuff. parts so, of of yeah. say North Africa or the Middle mm. East didn't. Mm. You know, they didn't take on the same specialized roles. Mm. So my point is, culture is is learned and it's not fixed mm. and it can be changed. And uh, so, you know, why not, why can't Indigenous people, and of course they can change their culture. Mm. And yet, uh, you know, one thing that, that I, um, I suppose have objection to is this idea that Indigenous culture is, uh, is rigid or unchanging mm. and that mm. they have to protect it and preserve it at all costs. Mm. You know, obviously they don't. Mm. And if it's in some aspects disadvantageous, why not change it? Yeah. The, the other thing as well, a little sideline as part of all this, is just uh, the respect paid to Indigenous spiritual beliefs mm. that we don't give to Christian, Indeed. Uh, Muslim or, or other religions. Like you'll find people on the left who would be appalled at the idea of, and rightly so, the Lord's Prayer in Parliament, in Parliament uh, as spiritual mumbo-jumbo nonsense, yet will happily engage in a smoking ceremony in the foyer. Oh, isn't this wonderful? Yes. And if Uh, we, for example, said, you know, we don't need the smoking ceremony, thank you very much, they'd say, well, that's a bit disrespectful, uh, disrespectful, isn't it? Yes, yes. So why why are they special? Because, and we go back through all the issues that we've just been through in this uh, thing. So also we're finding that there's a, a sort of, a magical respect for things like Indigenous healing practices. And we're now finding Indigenous people in our hospitals providing Indigenous healing services, Mm. which, you know, we would never allow Chinese medicine in because Mm. we'd say it hasn't been proven. That's right. But we allow this this in. So we're just just trying to be consistent. Yes. Whereas, you know... As yeah. we know, some on the left are very inconsistent. Yes. So, so there you go. That's, uh, in a nutshell, our arguments as mm. to Indigenous matters. And there's a lot more we could talk about. Indeed. And we could go into greater detail about other stuff, but to mm. keep it in t- uh, sort of in a reasonable time. And so to any potential Indigenous spokesperson who we invite onto the show, uh, we would have referred you to this particular episode and said, have a listen mm. and... By all means, get in contact if you want to uh, debate any of the particular issues we've raised. Mm. Send us a note telling us what you are going to debate and maybe give us a heads up on Mm. what your actual thoughts are and why we're wrong Mm. and then we'll have a debate and and convince us that we're mistaken or wrong or something yeah. like that. So that would be good. So, I think I've, I've even yeah. changed my mind a little bit on Julia, Julian Assange, you know. I was, yeah. Did you see the Four Corners program about him on Monday night? No, I didn't. It was so. interesting. And look, I don't know, but we can talk about that another time. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to go home or you just want to go onto, a, onto general topics now? <laughs> I, I don't mind. What do you feel like? <laughs> I don't have any. I don't have them on board. But if you, no, that's we'll, all right. Let's we'll talk about Julian another time. Okay, but um, yeah. look, you know. Um, so, so, dear listener, uh, just okay, one more yeah, thing okay. I would say, and and I have a bit of a problem with the way, you know, other quite well-meaning people, I'm sure, 
tend to romanticise indigenous culture as some kind of garden and garden of Eden, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, humanity living in harmony with nature thing. Yep. Whereas the reality, according to you know historical documents, is you know it may have been quite idealistic in certain very fertile, nice, comfortable niches, environmental niches in Australia, like around the Sydney Basin or, you know, even just about anywhere on the East Coast, I suppose. But Mm. in the interior, it was pretty tough going for a lot of Indigenous people a lot of the time. Mm. And their culture was not all that um, uh, kind for example, to women and girls. Yeah. And from what I've read, it, being a female in the Indigenous culture was often a pretty tough assignment, mm-hmm. if I can put it like that. And yeah. I've read some pretty horrifying reports mm. um, about it. Mm. So there you go. That's you one go. more aspect mm. that I think people need to put a bit of, you know, put Indigenous culture into a bit of perspective. Mm. All right, that's that issue. So, dear listener, we normally on this podcast oh, run through the topics of the week and and, uh, and thank the sponsors. I, uh, well, I don't have the list in front of me. Oh, actually, maybe I do. Uh, the, maybe the patrons don't want to be associated patrons, with with. I should uh, say rather than the sponsors. Well, yeah, let's 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 uh, let's find the patrons. We've got time to do that. Let me just bring them up here and uh, patrons and beer sponsors. So, dear listener, you're the beer sponsor today. Yeah, I am the beer sponsor. So, <laughs> you know, we don't do this for a living. This is a little part-time thing that we do on the side. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are expenses, and I'm clearly going to need to invest in some sort of wireless transmitter on 4G so that I can get this streaming oh, because okay. my phone was tethered and it just didn't do the trick this time. Okay. So, um, we subscribe to a number of uh, newspapers and magazines, and uh, there's hosting fees and things. So, to help cover the costs. We have patrons. So the way it works is, uh, obviously, this is free to listen to. You can download it. You don't have to. You don't need any special password. It's all there. Uh, and we simply say to you that you're entitled to listen to 20 to 25 episodes, absolutely free. But if at the end of that time you reach the point where you think, gosh, I'm enjoying this podcast, can't wait for it to come out. And every, you know, I mean, we'd record on Tuesday night. Every Wednesday you're, you're looking and checking your app if it's there and you're excited when it pops up. If you're in that category, we expect you to become a patron and stump up and and just a dollar a show, US dollar a show. It's not a all lot. we ask, less than a cup of coffee a month probably and good value, I say. <laughs> now, if you don't like that idea uh, and, you stu- and you do enjoy the show, then really what you're doing, you're like the person who would um, drive through the countryside, you'd see the uh, bag of avocados in the honesty box and would take the avocados and not put any money in in the honesty box. So, uh, And we know you're not like that. No, you're not. So (laughs) if if you enjoy the program, the podcast, and appreciate the effort that goes into it and see some value in that, then uh, hop onto the website, ironfistvelvetclub.com.au, You'll see some links for Patreon. You can uh, sign up or you can just do it through PayPal donations. Right. Some people who have done that in the past, some of them as long ago as the 5th of February 2016, was Sean, 
It was our first. Well done, Sean. Thank you, Sean. Janelle Craig, John Landon, Wayno, Ayame, Allison, Steve, Tony, Caitlin, Watley, Jimmy Spud, Kane, Broman, Matt J, Robert, Rod, Palais, Maddockman, Dominic, Liam, Dave, Squeaky Wheel, Daniel, Harry, Gavin, Peter, Captain Doomsday, Aidan, Wheat Watcher, Nico, Andy, Murray, Melinda, Adam, Greg, Professor, Dr. Dentist, Will, Glenn, Craig, Matthew, Clinton and Alexander. Some people don't like Patreon, so they do it via PayPal. Thank you, Dean. Ken was the beneficiary. Mark, Mr. Anderson and Corinne. Uh, the list time, is getting longer, though, isn't it? Uh, we get a couple, you know, usually once a month or something like that. So yeah, I'll give you an example. What are we on? We did quite well in the last couple of months. We picked up about six in the last couple of months, so that was good. Um, also... We have beer sponsors, and thank you to Was Wayno, Landon, Bronwyn, Dave, Adam, Landon, Caitlin, Zach, Captain Doomsday, and the Iron Fist for tonight. Good on you. <laughs> uh, what else can we say? Um, we've got the website. Look, how are you accessing this podcast? You should be uh, subscribing and downloading in an app. If you're on an iPhone, there's a purple app. Just use it and subscribe. It'll appear automatically. Don't wait for a Facebook notification and then think to just stream it from the website. Like, get an app and just download it and it happens automatically. That's the easiest way. And they way. pay through the Cost Apple them Store, nothing. do they? Cost them nothing. Oh, nothing. Yeah, the app's oh, okay. free, the thing's free, and it'll just arrive in your, um, okay. uh, in your app. So you should be doing that. You should be on our Facebook page and just sort of liking the page, and that way... When we get this live streaming worked, you'll get a little notification saying they're live streaming. And what you'll be able to do is communicate with us and talk to us and leave messages and we'll yeah. be able to deal with them. So, and we love feedback. Yeah. Joe, Joe and, and Watley tuned in while they could but left, I think, because it was just too difficult. Mm. Fair enough. And what else can we say that uh, I want to get out? Um, we've got the website, got the Facebook page. Um, send us some Tips, articles, things like that that you might come across that would be good. People to speak to who you think might be of interest. Point them to our um, podcast and Mm. tell them about it. Mm. Even your friends. Like, have you told your friends about this podcast and said, have a listen to this? There you go. (laughs) Uh, That's the hard sell on all those things. Oh, and one other thing. This is actually... uh, Now we're getting up to an hour and a half. Do you know I did two hours of podcasting before we even started, 12th Man? How was that? Today. I was on uh, Cam Riley's podcast, The oh, Bullshit Filter. Yes. Oh, okay. And uh, so we recorded an episode on um, Boris Johnson. Oh. Mm. Yes. So The new clown in town. Yeah. So if you want more of me, you can go on to Cam's uh, podcast, mm. The Bullshit Filter, and I'm on that one. And we had a – look, it, it was a fun episode, but you probably do need to know – and be familiar with their normal show because there was a lot of in-jokes. So okay. some of it will be lost on you if you're not a regular listener, but it's worthwhile and Cam does a great podcast, so mm-hmm. uh, listen to that one. All right, well, that's the end of this episode of the award-winning Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. Twelfth Man, as always, you've been magnificent. Oh, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> it's always a pleasure. We'll be back next week, I think, Scott, and talk to you then. Yeah. Bye, all. Bye. See ya. That was good. It was good, chat. Another beer. beer. <laughs>